Welcome to Blackhawks Insider, the official podcast of the Chicago Blackhawks, presented by ChevyDriveChicago.com, drive what Kane and Taves drive. I'm Carter Bauman. Coming up on this week's episode, Patrick Sharp joins the show to reminisce on 2010 ahead of the second 2010 anniversary night upcoming on Thursday, where Brian Campbell will be honored with one more shift, as well as the Brent Seabrook bobblehead giveaway. Plus, we discuss Patrick Kane and the streak that he's on, as well as if the Blackhawks' current scoring abilities is sustainable over the full season. That and more coming up on Blackhawks Insider, presented by your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealers. It's all about the drive. Hey, it's Adam Burrish. On the road to the top, it's all about drive. The all-new Chevy Blazers got some serious game with available driver control mode. Shift from touring to all-wheel drive to sport to tow and haul. This ride is built for Chicago weather. Yeah, on and off the ice. Turn your Blazer into a mobile hotspot with available 4G LTE Wi-Fi, keeping you connected 24-7. Check out the all-new Chevy Blazer at ChevyDrivesChicago.com. Drive. It's how you get where you're going. Uh, I just remember Steve's going down and pulling it to his backhand and... uh, I ended up scoring to win. I just remember him fist pumping about 10 times coming down the middle of the ice. So I think we had our black jerseys on that game too. But it was, uh, I mean, obviously it's something you'll never forget um, because, you know, it's a defense from the shootout scoring a goal to win it. And I think Siebs always likes to joke around that he's 100% in shootouts. He's one for one. So, um, uh, yeah, it was a fun moment. That is Patrick Kane remembering every single detail of an 11-round shootout, a 4-3 win over the Columbus Blue Jackets on December 1st, 2009. Carter Baum alongside Adam Burrish, Chris Cook, and our special guest today, Patrick Sharp, joining the show. Uh, Gentlemen, you were both around the team during that time. Uh, Patrick Kane knew every detail. Jonathan Taves looked like I was speaking German to him. Uh, He had no idea what I was referencing. Do you guys remember that game at all? I don't remember the game, but we talked a little bit before the podcast to kind of refresh my memory. I do remember Siebes going backhand and scoring the winner because he tells everybody about it all the time, how he's <laughs> one for one in the shootout. And anytime we got deep into a shootout after that, he was always yelling at the coaches to put him in and his percentage was higher than Kane's and Taves and mine and everybody. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I didn't remember the details of the game, but I do remember Siebes winning one in overtime. I, in I didn't realize that that was his only... Shootout ever, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, holy man! I I don't I do know that I was in the press box where I belong right? <laughs> during that shootout, but right I was next, injured. Right next to me, right, Burke? Yeah, I was yeah. next to you, Chris. But yeah. I was injured, so I wasn't scratched, which is which would be a good guess. But um, the, I I don't remember, but I remember we had a couple long shootouts that year. And my first question was uh, to Sharp before we started here: is what was what was your mood? Do you remember what you did in that shootout or no? No, I don't remember. Um, the stats say that Hosa shot second, which was weird. So I was probably just upset that I wasn't in the crabby. top three, right? <laughs> Kane, Tave, Sharp was usually the rotation. Yeah. So I probably just went and fired one in the chest or something. <laughs> it wasn't until later in my career that I figured out a shootout move. But a lot of our, our shootouts went deep that year. And I'm thinking that it was like the early years of the shootout that the players weren't really prepared for it. Goaltenders had the advantage. Now you see every player in the league have two or three or four different shootout moves because of YouTube and all the highlights and all that stuff. I do remember um, the D-men always going like, get a D-men out there. Get one of us out there. And and Quinville just kind of looking like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) We got a lot of good forwards here. 
You're probably wondering why we're talking about a, a shootout from way back when, but it is Brent Seabrook bobblehead night on Thursday, another 2010 anniversary night, and he scored the dramatic winner in the 11th round of that shootout. Uh, as you mentioned, Sharpie, uh, one for one in his career on the shootouts, uh, a special moment for him. Uh, the first 10,000 fans at Thursday's game will get uh, a commemorative bobblehead as we celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the 2010 Stanley Cup Championship. And uh, you mentioned a lot of late round shootouts that year. There are 15 shootouts in total that season in wow. an 82-game schedule, uh, nine wins and six losses, so decent record. Uh, two of them went to eight rounds. One went to nine rounds. And another one that we're talking about went to 11 rounds. Uh, you guys had a quite the flair for the dramatics late in games there. I had nothing to do with any of them, so I never got <laughs> one career shootout, so ask Sharp about that. That's a lot of shootouts, yeah. isn't it? 15 in an 82-game season? It's a high percentage, and especially in that one, uh, until Seabrook's winner, there were only two shots converted. Hossa beat Cristobal Huey in the second round with the second shot. Jakub Voracek scored to start the third round, uh, and a whole lot of misses and saves. Yeah. Between the uh, between all those rounds and four on four overtime back then too, that yep. probably had a lot to do with those shootout numbers being up. But I don't think we're going to see fifteen shootouts this year. That three on three is fun to watch. I yes. remember thinking though when we were in, I'm like, we're gonna like Taves had that look always. Like I'm gonna score. Um, Kane, you were just kind of like, this is gonna be cool. Whatever he's gonna do, and then. I was like, all right, Sharp's going to go, and either it's going to be like a, a forehand, backhand, and forehand up top, or like a little zipper low block or something like that. Was that wh- – what that's, were – That's the early days. The, the, I went backhand and then back to my forehand and tried to chip it up. I scored a lot in the minors doing that. Had zero success at the NHL level doing it. So I, I kind of talked with Kaner a little bit, kind of thought about a shootout move, and it might have been like 2014, 2013 that I actually went – pretty high percentage I think maybe six for seven or seven for nine after that but it, I think it pays for the forward to have a plan going down really? there. the best guy in the shootout is TJ Oshie yeah and I don't think there's any question about that I know like the career numbers Taser's up there Kaner's got to be close Zach Parisi's there but Oshie has an approach where he comes in the same way every single time and there's three different moves that he can use and it's just up to whatever he wants to do whatever the goal he's given him he's going to do so I kind of adapted that approach but Still was never very good in the shootout. You know, Oshie in the Olympics, he's their guy, right? U.S. Yeah. You can keep using the same shooter, and he kept doing. I guess against Russia was it the mm-hmm. game that he just kept, must have scored six out of seven or something like that. It was outrageous. My favorite was the Marion Hosa, who would just crank up a slap shot. Yeah, that was from a cool the slot. It was great. And the goalie's eyes would get big, and yeah. he just blow right by him. That was my favorite. Cook, and I'm sure as the beat reporter during that season, you deadline really, killers. You really yeah. love those 15 round <laughs> shootouts. That just get it over. Right up against the deadline. I was uh, like, okay, Sharp's going to do this now. We're going to get the. We're going to hit deadline, and then. Okay, well, we're so all the way to if the game didn't get done, you couldn't get your story in. Exactly, yeah. yeah what was the time? Midnight? Uh, it changed, no, yeah, I wish. No, it changed throughout the years, but uh, it used to be 11.25, so it'd be fine. And then it just got progressively earlier and earlier, and nobody really cares about this. So I used to file my stories before the games were over. And oh, then, like, yeah. you guys plug in the score at the, on the desk. Did so. you ever get caught filing a, a story that changed dramatically in the final oh, seconds? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd get these emails like, you didn't even talk about the game when you <laughs> old. And I'd be like, I'll try better. But I filed it like half an hour before the game ended. Yeah. So, yeah, it was difficult. But, yeah, I never liked the shootout. never liked the long overtime. Those, those overtimes in the Stanley Cup finals were just killers. Yeah. Right? And fun the, to watch. What the players don't realize and what maybe some of the fans don't realize is you're sitting in the press box. The locker room opens maybe five minutes after the the horn blows. Yeah. 
So to be down there and to get your interviews, you have to leave the press box before the game's over. So you have to send a story and you have to kind of yeah. mm-hmm. be ready. And uh, those are the struggles that we go through. You guys worry about the shootouts. Right. Uh, we're worried about getting down to the, the <laughs> I, locker room. Inside. I was worried about, and other guys, a few guys could tell you this, but as a guy in my shoes, you don't play the last five minutes or six minutes of the third period. You don't play in four on four. And then you got a 10 round shootout that lasts 20 minutes. I'm sitting in like soggy, wet clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Your skates are bugging you. Your gloves are soggy. I would take my gloves off and you'd put them by the water bottles underneath. So at least your hands could breathe a little bit. You'd undo your helmet. Uh, A lot of guys would undo their skates a little bit. You'd be sitting on the bench and you just untie your skates because they're just jammed in these skates. (laughs) But I just remember feeling like soggy, sitting in like kind of cold, wet, Wet undergear. It's at some point they're like, "Okay, Burris, you're up." No, nah, yeah, like, well, tell like, oh, yeah, I gotta yeah. lace up the skates. You gotta <laughs> keep going. Well, we'll talk. Uh, we'll come back to the 2010 night and a lot of great stuff happening around that game. But uh, we have two analysts here, so we have a lot to to dive into and and sharp and burish. The Blackhawks until Tuesday night were flying high, four game win streak, uh, leading the NHL in goals scored. Uh, things were going. Great. And then for the first two and a half periods against the Hurricanes, they're flat. Uh, they scored two goals in 70 seconds to make it a game late in eventual 4-2 loss to Carolina. But I want to get your, your thoughts, each of you, on is this style of play sustainable? Scoring lots of goals, uh, giving up chances the other way, whether the quality's good or not. You know, it's kind of a, a run-and-gun style, and it's really exciting to play, but it's also relying on being there from the start and going for a, a full 60 minutes uh, going over the next few weeks and potentially into the rest of the year if they continue to play this way. Yeah, history kind of shows that it's not sustainable. That's traditionally not the teams that that win deep in the playoffs or the ones that are trading chances offensively. You look at the three championships that the Blackhawks won, a lot of credit gets given to those guys for scoring goals and making plays and, and highlight real moments, but it was really the, the team defense the goals against were always low. The penalty kill was strong. That's what gets you into those overtimes. That's what gets you in those close games later on. One thing that the Hawks have, um, a bullet that they can fire at any moment, is, is they've always had it, is they can call a timeout late in the game if they're within a goal or two, get the extra attacker on there. And I like the six guys on the ice. They always seem to make something happen where they score a goal or, or create something. Uh, so that's a valuable part of the game. But I love watching the Hawks play. They're, to me, the most exciting team to watch for good reasons and for bad. And sometimes you get those games like the Las Vegas on the road last week that, man, there was, what, 20, 25, 30 chances in that <laughs> yeah, game, back awesome. and forth. Goaltenders probably weren't too happy. But I feel like our goaltenders with Leonard and Crawford, they don't mind the action. I mean, they probably don't want the 2 on 0 breakaways, mm-hmm. but uh, they don't mind seeing some rubber. And as long as the Hawks can keep those uh, shots to the outside, clear the second and third chances, you know, it's going to give the Blackhawks offensive guys a chance to do their damage. Um, Pat Boyle asked us, asked me yesterday during the TV broadcast, um, is the same question, is this sustainable? Are we relying too much on the goalies uh, to make 30, 40 saves every night? What if they, you know, their play dips a little bit? Are we, and then when I was playing here in Chicago, it was, are, are we relying too much on Kane, Taves, Sharp, Hosa? Um my answer, not to be a smartass, is, well, that's why we pay these guys the big bucks, right? I mean, that's why Stan went out and has a $6 million and a $5 million goalie because they're expected to play like they have been. And I think if you asked guys in the locker room, I, that's what we expect out of Crow and Leonard. And when I was playing here, that's what I expected out of Sharp and Kane and Taves and Hosa, that they're going to carry us. 
That's why they make the big bucks. So it sounds like kind of a smart-ass answer, but I think it's the truth. And I think if you ask those guys, ask, ask Leonard, do you think that this team's going to be good if your play's going to dip? He's going to say, well, my play's not going to dip. Like, that's what I'm paid to do. So um, I think they would like to tighten it up defensively. The great teams in Chicago have had that, right? The, the really stingy defense when it needed to be. But I love watching the run-and-gun hockey players, like playing it, fans like watching it. Tighten up a few chances against. I think the chances nowadays in hockey, they're higher than they were. I mean, I think 8 to 10 is probably to give up 8 to 10 high scoring chances is probably the number now. A lot of games you're at 13, 15, they're giving up. But, you know, if you're getting 16, 17, you're giving yourself a chance to win. This is this has been really fun to watch the last month. And the flip side of this is that it's not always run and gun. Like there's a handful of games that we've watched this year that the Hawks have locked things down. You know, credit new players coming in, getting used to each other, the adjustment period. Connor Murphy's been out for a length of time. That hurts the defensive structure of the team. But you look across the league, all 31 teams and chances are high. There's some yeah. quality players, whether it's power play opportunities, the rules have changed a little bit. That hurts the defensive players. Uh, the skill level of these guys coming in the league, there's some nice plays being made every single night. So the fact that the Hawks can make those plays offensively and they're getting better at stopping them in their own end, that's a good sign going forward. And Cook Jonathan Taze was mentioning that in the locker room today of, look, there's at least one or two goals per game that they keep out that we have no idea how they do it. Yeah. He said, you know, against Carolina, there was a toe save from Leonard in the second period that uh, he literally said, I don't know how that didn't go in. Burr, you mentioned it. This system doesn't work, right, unless those goaltenders are yeah. as good as they've been. And Robin Leonard's kept him in every game. Corey Crawford's been very strong. It's great for the fans. It's great for the players, I'm sure, to skate up and down the ice and have those chances. But without the goaltending, you know, it's not the same result. So I think that Stan Bowman, whether he envisioned this plan, you know, in the summer saying, okay, we're going to open it up, we're going to have, you know, a lot of high scoring chances against. But when he did bring in Robin Leonard and everybody kind of went, why would you bring in another number one? This is why. Because yeah. they can go, they can alternate. So, I mean, while guys look exhausted after the game, they've got a couple days now to recover, whether Corey Crawford's in the net the next game or Robin takes it, but then they got back-to-backs. So really without the goaltending, and, and, you know, Patrick, you mentioned that Connor Murphy was out for a long time. So, you know, when he was playing his best hockey before he was injured, and now he comes back. So now you can kind of back it off a little bit maybe. You know, you don't you give him, look up so many high-level chances. Um, I think the other night was, was, you know, too many breakaways, too many odd man rushes. It's something they want to clean up quite a bit. But look around the league. It's kind of changed, right? I mean, the – this isn't playoff hockey. Playoff hockey is you lock it down. You know, yep. you, you take the body. We saw what the Blues did. But look what Colorado's doing when they're healthy. Look what Edmonton's doing. They're skating up and down the ice and they're creating chances. And the Blackhawks have those kind of guys who can score those kind of goals. Mm -hmm. You always hear that players maybe get a boost from a big saver when their goalie's playing well. How much does that translate? Is, is that even true? You know, if your goalie's keeping you in it back there, do you feel almost an onus like, hey, we got to step it up because this guy's playing at the top of his game right now? Yeah, exactly. It goes both ways. It gives you confidence as an offensive player that you have that trust in a goaltender. Hey, if you try to create in the offensive zone or maybe through the neutral zone and it doesn't turn out, that you got a guy that's a rock in the net that can bail you out of a situation. And we got two of them with Crawford and Leonard. So I know I always appreciated when we had a great goaltender in the net, made a big difference to my game. And I see the confidence in the group as well. It's about handling the puck. It's about making plays. It's about being relaxed out there. And having a good defense and goaltender is a big part of that. I think back, Sharpie, to uh, the conference finals against San Jose in 2010 when Niemi stole that game one in San Jose where we just got spanked. Uh, there was every 2010 pack that, that you guys put out there, the Blackhawks, you and Adam Carter, um, there's that game of these saves that Niemi made that he shouldn't have made. 
Now, we didn't play better that game. We kind of just kept giving up more and more chances, and he kept stopping them. But I think in a series, that's what gives you that confidence. Like, holy man, this guy can steal a game from us. So now, game two, let's be better. Let's be a little bit better here and, and help Niemi out a little bit. So I think that's where the confidence comes from. In a game, sometimes you're just a little flat. Or sometimes they've, they've, they've got a matchup that they're using or that we're taking too many penalties, whatever. And you're like, I hope our goalie can bail us out here. And when he does, now in the regular season, now maybe the next night, we're in the locker room. You guys are like, all right. Let's be better. You know, hey, Crow, you bailed us out. Or, hey, Robin, you helped us last night. We're going to help you tonight. Um, but I think Sharpie's right that sometimes the goalies, they like a little bit of action. They, you know, if they get 16, 17 shots, it's kind of tough to get a rhythm. When you get 30, 35, they feel okay with that. Now, 40, 45, 50 shots a night might be a little heavy. Are you able to cheat a little bit too, offensively? I mean, knowing that. A okay. little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, That's you know, all he yeah. did. Yeah, right. So, but I know you can, get, you can go in deeper, but are you able to you take advantage when you say, okay, Leonard's on his game, Corey's on his game. I'm going to cheat up a little bit. And if you do give up an odd man rush, that he's going to bail us out. Absolutely. Works for the defenseman as well. When you see Gus kind of jump into the play or a defenseman hold the offensive blue line, you appreciate that as a forward. Yeah, you might be putting a little pressure on the goaltender at different times, but it's a balance and there's a time to do it. You know, play the score, play the situation. You don't want to just be running gun all the time because that can be very easy to defend uh, from an opposition standpoint. But yeah, absolutely. Take a few chances offensively. It's, it's tough to score in the NHL. You have to do that. You got to play on the offensive side of the puck at times if you want to score. I mean, I know this isn't exactly a, a lesson for young players listening to the podcast, go out there and cheat and try to score. But, you know, when you trust that goaltender, the defenseman, everybody's on the same page. Yeah, you can get in behind some defenders and, and do some damage. Well, and Connor Murphy told you the same thing last night, Chris, of both goals late in the game. Yes, you're down 3 nothing. You can cheat all you want because at that point the scoreline is what it is with eight minutes left in the game. But both goals come from Patrick Kane pulling up on the half wall and finding a center, uh, a defenseman coming into the slot to score a goal. Two, two goals, 70 seconds apart, almost the same exact play on opposite sides of the ice. And uh, Murphy told you afterwards, like, yeah, you know, when you have high skill guys like that, it opens up space and we have to be able to take advantage of it. I think the first 17 games, they had three goals out of the defensemen and the last four games, they've had six. So, I mean, you guys as forwards know that that's a big deal, right? I mean, you've got some scoring from the back end, which the Blackhawks didn't really have. Now, I, we were talking about this formula about it's great to, you know, leave Leonard and Crawford to do the heavy work, but there were just too many odd man rushes. Yeah. Last night, you can't live by you can't live by that. And uh, Leonard was actually kicking. I almost had that two on zero. He's like, I almost stopped yeah, that puck, which would have been with the heel. Yeah, yeah which which would have been huge. But you do need to lock it down a bit here, and especially against certain teams, right? I mean, that team last night um, really highly skilled, and it's not a team that you want to face in the playoffs, as the Capitals found out last year. But I guess you probably do it against certain teams. But you know, if there, if there's some talent there, you can't open it up like that. And what Connor Murphy was saying there to you guys, just in English. And kind of what Sharpie was saying, too, is when he sees Kane out there, Taves out there, your top-end guys, defensemen jump in more, mm -hmm. and they're going to keep more pucks alive. If you've got your third and fourth lines out there, especially your fourth line, Connor Murphy's probably not jumping in, or Gustafson's probably not jumping in as much. I know when I played, I'd be yelling at the D-man, like, why didn't you pinch there? You pinched when Sharp was out there. The puck was there. You could have kept it in. They're like, well, because if I keep it in and give it to you, you're probably going to turn it over. Or your little <laughs> and now it's coming back my way. Yeah. So, But that's what Connor was saying. When I see Kane out there, I know I can jump in because he's going to deliver that puck perfectly on my tape. Not all run and gun, too. I just want to add that. Like Those two goals that the Hawks did score against Carolina from the back end, 
that was all created in the D zone. Yeah. They come yeah. out of the zone clean. They can go through the neutral zone to it and Kane. They've done it so many times throughout the year. All of a sudden now the defense can get active. If you're pinned in the zone and you can't have a tough time stopping the offensive, you know, cycle and the offensive attack, you're not going to have the energy to jump in offensively. So it works both ways. Well, Patrick Kane pushed his point streak to 10 games. It's the sixth time in his career he's hit double digits in a point streak. Uh, he's up to seven points on his birthday, a goal and six assists in six games. Do you guys ever end up playing on your birthdays and get a little boost out of that? Once upon a time. I think I did once. As a matter of fact, I think it was one of my only two-point games in my career. I think on my birthday, and I could be off, but I think it was on my birthday in Arizona, and I got an autographed stick by Wayne Gretzky when he was coaching That's the team, too. That's not a bad day I right think there. it was a nice day for me. It was like a career highlight of a day for me. I got an autographed right stick by the greatest player ever, and I had to, maybe my only two-point night in my career. He's got a little tear in his eye right now. Yeah. He's welling God, up a little bit. The, can we get a highlight or a video <laughs> podcast on this? Yeah. Bobblehead's coming out soon. It might have been the 7th. or the, My birthday's on January 6th, but it might have been the sixth, fifth, or the seventh, I think. But either way, right on. I think mm-hmm. it was my birthday. I'm going to call it my birthday. Hey, if you're getting two points that close to your birthday, we're just going to say it's your birthday. <laughs> okay. right. Doesn't Thanks. matter if it's the actual day. Beth, you've been known for whenever you have a kid, right? You you do you do pretty well, right? Yeah, game winners after both. Uh, the very next day after my daughters were born, two for two, and uh, one birthday game that was very special for me. December 27th. I'm not sure. It must have been 2013. It was the Olympic year of 2014. And uh, three goals and an assist per. So you had two points, I had four. <laughs> but that night and then that line that I was on, going back to kind of what we were talking about before, I was playing on line with Hosa and Taves. And then I think it was Keith and Yarmelson were the defensemen and Corey Crawford's the goalie. So you talk about cheating a little bit. Yeah. It's like those four guys plus Crow could have been on the ice without me and they wouldn't have been scored on. So with me out there as that fifth guy, I could just play offense and take chances, a lot of breakaways that year, a lot of two-on-ones, and let the other guys clean up the mess. So uh, I know it's a little sidetrack, but good defense allows people to, to take chances you, offensively. You talked about this uh, during the broadcast for the Carolina game, and um, you would always you said when Kane has a bunch of family or friends or it's a big night, he always delivers. And it's true. And you were kind of like that, too, I remember. If you had your family there, it was hockey night in Canada. In Toronto, you always scored at those games. In Calgary, when your brother was there, you always scored in that game. And I think it was something... I think, uh, like, special players or really high-skilled players, they... They get excited in those moments. I always got excited, but I would play terrible, or I would like put too much pressure on her. I would try too hard. Um, where you were one of those guys too, Sharpie. I remember when we were roommates, and you'd say, I got this person here. My brother's here. My family's here. This is a national TV game. And that, there's no coincidence that, that the big-time players, when the bright lights, it's national game. Or So if you're a betting guy at home and you're a gambler, when you see – you heard Kane's got his family there, or it's a national game, or it's Hockey Night in Canada. Bet on those guys to score, because usually they deliver. Mine wasn't so much the people that were at the game. It was just me wanting that FaceTime, getting yeah. that interview, yeah. you know, on national it TV. Is. Yeah. <laughs> but Kaner, Kaner does it every single time, and I don't have a stat to back this up, but I'm going to gamble and say that there's no player since Kaner entered the league that has more points in the month of November. Kaner dominates November every single year. He's always on a point streak. He's always scoring around his birthday. And it just kind of sets the tone for the rest of his season. So he's on fire right and now. We so, knew he was going to do something last night, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, we said that. And you said it. And the night before when he had against Buffalo and he had his family all sitting in that corner, mm-hmm. if, if you pl- go back and people listening and play that goal and he celebrates and looks into the crowd, he's looking at his family there. They're sitting right there in that corner. So he always knows where they're at. And when he's got a crowd there, he tries to score in that corner and celebrate right in front of him.
Well, you mentioned Kane in November. This is his sixth 10-plus game point streak, and I think it's the third one to occur during the month of November. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. He he lights it up in the month yeah. of November, yeah. and uh, he lights it up a lot of months. He lights it up especially a lot of months, like but. November's his <laughs> month. I mean, he does pretty good in the playoffs too, doesn't he? Yeah, that uh, this is sidetrack. I get sidetracked, but you know that book Outliers. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. not an outlier either. Are you? You're a December birthday, no, right? Defy the odds, Burr. Yeah, whatever. But you and Kane, <laughs> November and December birthdays, and you guys were pretty good. So maybe that book's garbage. Stop putting me in Kane's category. He's a little bit higher up. Yeah, I know. I'm I just pumping your tires. Maybe you'll come back and do this podcast with us again if we pump you up a little bit. <laughs> He'll be sitting in your spot next week. <laughs> exactly. Cook, these two are going back and forth here in front of us. You just talked to Alex Dabrinkit and Dylan Strom mm-hmm. about their friendship. Do you see some parallels in... And these two are Alex and Dylan, these two 2.0? Well, yeah, I think we got a little character, more character here. I mean, uh, DeBrink gets a little more, as he calls himself, he's more a little salt and a little plain. But uh, it must have been fun for you guys, just not, I mean, you're, you're rooming together on the road. And you're winning too, right? I mean, that coming coming back to the hotel room after a loss or getting on the plane after a loss um, is difficult. But when you're winning and you're on a long road trip and you're you're rooming, you have fun and you're playing pranks. How do you at the time do you realize this is really cool? This is you know this is the time of my life right now. No, I didn't realize it no. at all. But looking back on it, it was pretty special. And it wasn't just Burr and I. There was a whole team yeah. of kids in their early twenties, late twenties. We had some veteran guys, but for the most part, it was just a young, enthusiastic team, excited to connect with the fans in Chicago. We were, a bunch of us were used to playing in front of seven to 10,000 people. All of a sudden, the United Center's got 22,000 people every single night. It was just so exciting for us. And then you throw in the fact that, hey, we're actually got a pretty good team here, and we're winning games, and we're getting some national attention. It was just a a perfect storm of a lot of things, and we're lucky that we could do it together. Yeah, I, I agree. I didn't at the time, I didn't realize it. We were just having fun. It was just a blast. I loved it. <clears throat> when it set in for me, I think, was when I was playing in San Jose, and I just hated it there. And mm-hmm. um, you were, I, was, I was in a room on my own. We didn't have roommates then. And it just wasn't fun. It wasn't. Uh, and I remember thinking back, like, I was so jealous of guys getting the opportunity to come back and play in Chicago. And then at the end, Sharpie, you got to come back and play in Chicago again. And here I felt like I'm rotting in San Jose. I miss being in the NHL. I miss, like, felt like the NHL was the Chicago Blackhawks, not playing in San Jose. And so that's when I like, I look back and I thought about it and I appreciated so much my time in San Jose and having a, a great roommate and having a great group of guys and having, you know, Seabrook and Keith and Kane and Taves and Campbell and Sopel and Eager and Frazier. And I could go on and on and all these guys, it was so much fun. And I, I think at the time, and I hope these young guys, too, they appreciate, you know, Stroman, Dabrinkit playing together. Guess what? They're probably not going to play together their whole career. At some point, they're going to get separated, and then you'll appreciate it. And it took me till the last couple of years of my career when I was in a place I wasn't as happy, um, really wishing and, and being jealous of the guys that got to come back here. Is it? Can that translate to winning? I mean, it certainly there's been all there's accounts where bad locker rooms, guys don't get along, and they still, they're still able to win. But when you're that close, right, you'll skate through a wall for guys, right? And does that lead to winning often? I think so, and gets you excited to wake up in the morning and come to the rink after a game, win or lose, really. When you know you have a good team and you have the potential to go deep in the playoffs and you get along and everyone's kind of in the same boat on and off the ice, it makes the locker room like a safe space and a fun place to be. You don't you don't mind going to the rink on a day off. You don't mind staying around a little bit longer and telling stories and laughing and joking because everybody's doing it. And it becomes like everything in your life, your social life, your professional life, all comes together and you know, at some point for me, I don't know when it was, it just kind of turned into a job. And 
it was like tough to do it after a while. You know, maybe I just got older and played out. I know getting married and having the kids and the family life and all that kind of is a very important thing in your life, takes away some of that space in the brain where it can't be hockey 24-7. But those young teams, especially in 2010, it was all about hockey, all about doing it together. And it was a great, we're very lucky. I'm very lucky to say that I played on that team. You mentioned the 2010 team and talking about the locker room chemistry and it's going to tie right back in, bring us full circle to talking about Brent Seabrook because uh, he's one of those guys who uh, Patrick Kane said it today is absolutely one of the life lifelines in that locker room. He's kind of the, the off the ice leader for sure. Yeah. I'm doing a piece on Brent um, kind of how he's rebounded a little bit from a tough start to the season. And I did ask Patrick Kane today after practice and he just went on and on talking about what a great guy yeah. Brent Seabrook is and really the life, blood of that dressing room, right? I know that he's one of the more vocal guys, but he said, you can go ask anybody, guys who have been there a long time, guys who have been there a short, short time, like, who's your best friend on the team? Like, Brent mm-hmm. Seabrook. I mean, what does that guy mean to you guys when, when you were playing? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Mr. Biscuits. He kinda, easy boy. He kind of nailed it. I mean, yeah. he's just always that presence in the locker room. Forget about the on-ice stuff. Like, he's had a legendary career. But let's just talk about when you walk into the United Center, you go to the locker room, you always got Siebes sitting there doing the same routine. Yeah, always there early, doing the same routine, superstitions, always in a good mood, uh, good or bad hockey. He's still that same guy. He knows the importance of having a fun locker room. I love talking to him now because he doesn't talk about himself at all. It's Mm -hmm. all about Kirby. It's all about what he's up to. It's all about developing this young star player, Kirby Doc. And what a luxury it is for doc to be able to stay with the seabrooks and kind of be around seabs every day it's uh you can tell i don't know if, if kirby's going to play as well as he is right now if he's staying in the hotel by himself at 18 years old so i i mean i could go on all day about seabs but i'm one of those guys that when i think back to all the teammates i had burr's definitely one of them but seabs is a guy that's just like best teammate of all time always cares about the group cares about the guys in the locker room puts the group in front of his personal success and that's the best way to sum him up I think yeah he was the most selfless teammate I ever had I mean the most generous the most giving um there was never a guy I played with that was like that where it was you know it was at times you're like well when are you gonna like you you know you gotta maybe sleep today or don't you don't have to pick up Duncan Keith and shake him and wake him (laughs) out of bed and and drag him down and carry him into your car and like a child and set him in the back seat and let him sleep for another 20 minutes I mean and then he'd you'd show up at the rink, and there'd be breakfast there one morning for everybody. And then on the road, he's taking guys for dinner. I bet if you ask the trainers, um, who is the best? Yeah, but if you ask Troy Parchman, who's been one of the best uh, players that's ever treated the, the staff the right way, and he'd probably say Brent Seabrook. Nobody's more giving to those guys too. And every day was he. I don't remember like bad days for him. I remember like in the hotel some nights when we'd be messing with him, he may snap and the big gorilla would come out and he'd throw us around the hotel room a little bit and he'd snap and tell us to knock it off. But at the rink, he was always the same. He was always happy, always playing, always joking. Um, and I'm sure Chris, you would say the same in an interview that he's pissed off after some nights, but generally speaking, man, you come to the rink and you're, you know what you're getting out of him every day. And it was, uh, he, he was just, yeah, you kind of laugh when you think about him because mm-hmm. it was just always fun being around him. It's yeah. great to hear Kaner say so many nice things about yeah. Siebes because those two have kind of developed a, a pretty good friendship over the years, more recent years, um, to be specific. I don't know. Kaner's had a lot of teammates come and go. He's been one of those guys that's been here since 2007, I believe was his rookie year. And there's been a ton of guys come and go, a lot of good friends, teammates, you name it, and Siebes is one of those guys that's remained here, and those two are just building on their friendship as it moves along. Yeah, great point about Kirby Doc, though. I, I don't know if he is the same player, and I, I just 
saw Brent. I talked to Brent yesterday, and um, and Kirby was sitting right there taking his equipment off. And uh, I said, Brent, how are you doing? He's like, Well, I'm, you know, I'm bringing up another youngster in the, in the house. And I said, Have you had to ground him yet? And he said, No, but I took away his car keys. So, <laughs> uh, and you know, I guess uh, Brent takes care of him, but Kirby's got to do his, his own laundry though. Well, so, um, and that. just like so, people know. Generally, that 18-year-old, he's, he was kind of on a tryout, right, to start yeah, the mm-hmm. season in nine games. So he'd be sitting in the hotel by himself in a room, no kitchen, no refrigerator, no stove. Um, so 18 years old, you're, you're living on your own in a big city like Chicago, no car probably. Maybe he's got a car here. At, maybe he had one at the time or maybe he got it now. But um, I did it when I first came out of college. I meant I was at the old Sutton Place Hotel with no car. And you're just figuring it out. And I agree with you guys that he wouldn't be the same. And um, There's I, one negative, though. What? What if Kirby adapts all of Seabrook's superstitions oh, and God. starts doing the same thing yeah. that Seabs does? That'd be a nightmare, Crazy. right? Yep. Everything well, in three sevens. Cups, be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Everything work. in sevens. Um, yeah, oh, that'd be... Yeah, that's tough. How can you live? I don't know how he could live. You, had a, you were kind of goofy, too, but... Um, I was roommates with Siebes for one road trip. It was in a Buffalo game, and that was it. I had called. You were gone. It was your first year in 2011, and I, I got to need a new roommate. Well, who am I going to go with? I'll go with Big Siebesy boy yeah. here. That's a fun guy to be with. Day one, Nightmare? I was like, I'm out of here. I can't do this. <laughs> he sets his alarm like it goes off eight times before he has to get up. You know, he set, hits the snooze seven, eight, nine times, and then it's just painful. I mean, I could talk about Siebes' superstitions all day. Let's hope Kirby doesn't pick up too many of them. That's all and, I need to say. And Patrick Kane, his rookie year when he was 18, do you remember who he stayed with? I do. Lived with? Yeah. Yeah, Stan Bowman. Yeah. And, and Stan's kids were two and five at the time, and Patrick was talking about that today, how important that was, that he was able to kind of ease in. Because you're right, you sit in the hotel room, and you're in your head the whole time, right? You've got nothing else going yeah. on. And I think it's really important that Brent has done this and doesn't willingly, right? He's really welcome. He's always in. done it. He's yeah. had guys that play in the minors in the summer. He's opened his house up to them. When he's back in, in back home in the summer, his his door's open. He lets guys during rookie camps, prospects camps, they yeah, go use my house. The keys are in the car. Go ahead and take the keys. Uh, drive around, whatever you need. He's had trainers stay at his house. Uh, he's yeah, he's he's as selfless and giving of a guy that I ever played with. Well, Brent Seabrook bobblehead to the first ten thousand fans. Well, don't Thursday's we get to make fun game. of him though? No, don't we get to rip him? We said enough nice things about him. <laughs> I mean, do you want to? <laughs> no, no. No. There's nothing we don't to say. You're, just, you're yeah. talking about he's a great teammate, oh, great person. Yeah, you know, he's I, the best. I didn't think there's the anything best. bad in no, there, so we're not. just gonna we're just gonna move on. But you can get your bobblehead tomorrow and put it on the shelf. I know right. you'll you'll want that. Sharps but. collect. Have you collected every? Every, every single bobblehead. Yeah, every single you're one except for two years I was in Dallas. I didn't get those, but I think it started. With the new management back in 2008 or nine was the first set of bobbleheads. I got every single one on a, in my office back in Connecticut. On your office. Yeah, yeah. A lot of dust in there probably, huh? Well, there's three Stanley Cup trophies. There's a, <laughs> there's a gold medal in humbled. there. What else? All-star game. All-star game. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's an all-star Public game. Tires there. Not a yeah. thing on the desk, though. <laughs> <laughs> Not a whole lot of work getting done in there, though. The bobbleheads take up a lot of space. They use it, uh, they use it very well. Another thing happening on Thursday... Brian Campbell coming back, getting one more shift. We've seen uh, so many great alumni come back and do this. We recently, um, you know, you got to see Dave Boland do it. How special is is this for Brian Campbell? I mean, he he works here every day. He's part of the he's a player development coach, but to be recognized kind of one last time as a as a player on the ice and, and get to go out and, and have that moment. Yeah, it's going to be real special for Soup. Burr and I were talking yesterday. He's got to do the spinorama, right? <laughs> Come out the good, right by the Zamboni entrance, do a little fake spinorama, yep. and then do his, his lap. We've but been telling him. I think he might do it, actually. I think he could. He needs to do it. But Soup's the guy that kind of made Chicago a home, and he was one of the first guys to do that, signed as a free agent. 
uh, met a girl, got married, got settled. Now he lives out in the suburbs and has a great base of family and friends. So I know that they'll all be at the game tomorrow uh, cheering them on. Soup. Nobody has tripped and fallen at the one more shift <laughs> campaign yet. We thought Bix might be the first one to kind of do <laughs> something. Bully speed wobbled. Bully, Bully did speed wobble. So Soup, make sure there's nothing on your blades. Don't be nervous. Uh, you got this. He wants to probably talk about his golf game too if we get to sit down with him because his golf game's gotten better. Most I mean, improved, yeah. Most improved. I yeah. see him in the office here, Carter, some days and he, uh, he, he, he comes in, he's like, hey, I want to show you guys some things I've been working on with my swing. <laughs> so he's the guy that sets up the cell phone camera and does the practice swings in front of the cell phone camera. But he's been real proud of the last couple of years moving back to Chicago and working on his golf game and living here. And, uh, yeah, he's kind of he's dangerous on the course right now. You think he picked that up in Florida? You had a little, yeah, a little time to, yeah. to get some golf yeah, in there. Is, yeah, hockey's like second or third place sometimes, <laughs> I think, with all that nice weather and nice golf courses. So. Um, but yeah, he's, he's been, he's another fun guy. that has been fun to have back in Chicago and have around from, from our 2010 team. He was great in 2010 as well. Like we're talking oh, about soup gosh. as the guy, but remember he didn't start the playoffs on time. He had the collarbone injury. Right. Ovechkin ran him into the board. And, and we were in a little collarbone. bit of yeah. trouble, right? Yeah. Ovechkin got him. Yeah. And then we we're in a little bit of trouble against Nashville. Soup comes back. We get bufflin up at forward instead of playing D, make him skate a little bit, make him finish some checks. All of a sudden we had a good team and soup played hurt throughout the playoffs and got the primary assist on a pretty big goal that year. So I know the fans will be excited to see Soup Dog out there. Well, that'll all happen on Thursday night at the United Center. Um, Patrick Sharp, it's been great having you on. Thank you for joining us and putting up with Burr for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, it's the know. end of November, isn't it? That's the first time I've been invited on the podcast. <laughs> I was waiting for we've this. Been, we've been asking Burr every single week. He's like, yeah, I'll get him. I'll, yeah, I'll get him. <laughs> Yeah. He just wanted to keep the spotlight yeah. to himself. You have to answer his text, too. To be <laughs> yeah, I thought you changed your phone number. <laughs> i got to rewire some things in my office. It must not be working. <laughs> yeah. Too many bobbleheads. Move all the bobbleheads around. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Burr. As always, it's been a pleasure. And, and Chris Cook, uh, I think that'll do it for this week's episode. A special thank you once again to Patrick Sharp. And for Chris Cook and Adam Burrish, I'm Carter Baum. We'll see you next time on Blackhawks Insider, presented by Chevy Drive Chicago. Drive what Kane and Taves drive. Rocket, and that was a beautiful move up the near side post.